This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners, to today's episode. I will be your host today. This is Paxton Bach. I am a general internist uh, in Vancouver, British Columbia, and we're glad to have a familiar face with us today. We're welcoming back Dr. Sam Young, who is also a general internist in Vancouver. Sam, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for having me back, Paxton, and Rounds Table listeners. Sam, it's our pleasure as always. And as you know, we like to jump right into it with the show. So without further ado, why don't you tell us what article you brought to the podcast today? So the article I wanted to talk about this week is the British TREAD HF trial or withdrawal of pharmacologic treatment for heart failure in patients with recovered dilated cardiomyopathy. And this is by Brian Halliday et al., and published in The Lancet just very recently in November 2018. Excellent choice, Sam. I was quite interested to read this one. So why don't you uh, start us off by just giving us the bottom line here. What is the real take-home message of this article? So this is an open-label pilot randomized trial of patients with recovered dilated cardiomyopathy. And in this population, withdrawal of treatment resulted in a relapse rate of 40% within six months. So that is, as I said, quite interesting. I was excited for you to bring this article to the show because it seems to me we are always studying new medications, but really when it comes to discontinuous medications, we really have a lot less data to guide us. So tell me what it is that caught your eye with this particular trial and why you brought it to the show. I think that's exactly right. We have a lot of evidence kind of guiding our treatment of heart failure, and we often like to ask medical students or residents, what's the evidence-based therapy for heart failure? But we really don't have any evidence to guide us on whether we can withdraw this therapy once people have recovered ejection fraction. Also, when I think about the patient population that this particular trial could apply to. It includes, you know, younger patients, potentially women with peripartum cardiomyopathy or substance induced cardiomyopathy. So understandably, many of those patients may want to stop their therapy. And we really didn't have any evidence to guide that discussion. But now we do. And I think it's probably not what patients might have hoped for and maybe what we had hoped for. But it's definitely very interesting. Just a a sneak preview of the results then. But I agree with you a very clinically relevant trial. This is something that comes up in most of our offices on a nearly daily basis. So let's dive into it then and get into the details here. Tell us about the methods of this particular paper. So this is a study that was conducted at a single center in London, England. It was an open label, so not blinded, pilot randomized trial. Since it was a pilot study, the N is therefore quite small, so there was only 51 patients who underwent randomization. But since it was a small study, they also included a single arm crossover phase. So those who were initially randomized to continue their medical therapy then went on themselves to have their medications withdrawn. So to sum up, everyone in the trial eventually underwent the intervention of having their medications withdrawn, but only half of them had the phase of having their medications continued to be compared, if that makes any sense. No, that makes sense. And I got to say, a pilot study being published in The Lancet, good on these guys, that gives us a little bit of a preview into how compelling the results are going to be, I think. Tell us a little bit more than you alluded to this already. Who were the patients that they enrolled here? So these are participants who had a history of dilated cardiomyopathy with reduced ejection fraction, less than 40%. And the average uh, entry ejection fraction was around, I think, 25%. 
And with medical therapy, they had then recovered their ejection fraction up to 50% or higher. They also had to have a normal left ventricular end diastolic volume and a normal BNP. The participants were excluded if they had uncontrolled hypertension, GFR less than 30, or had an arrhythmia requiring beta blockade. So, for example, atrial fibrillation. So these were pretty significant heart failure patients, and this was not mild failure, an average of 25%. Yeah, exactly. They were not mild in the beginning, but once they recovered, they were like NYHA class one, feeling well, no symptoms of heart failure. So in that respect, they were doing quite well on medical therapy. Okay, interesting. And then I think it's important also to recognize that this trial is focused on dilated cardiomyopathy. So this is not ischemic in origin. And the origin of their heart failure was 70% had idiopathic heart failure and 19% had an identified trigger. So things like pregnancy, alcohol, anthracycline use. And I think they explained that they chose this group because they were more likely to have recovery of their heart function compared to like ischemic cardiomyopathy. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd say that, you know, if we're talking about a definitive etiology here that is now gone, uh, it's conceivable that, that these are patients that could do really well with withdrawal. I think it's a reasonable hypothesis. Yeah, especially when you've withdrawn their trigger to begin with. These are definitely not your typical vasculopath patients, if we were to label them. None of them had any identified coronary artery disease, despite many of them having had caths before. Only one had diabetes and only three were smokers. They were mostly kind of middle-aged men, average median age was 55. And in terms of medical therapy, they were kind of on what you'd expect. All of them were on an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker, and 88% were on a beta blocker, just under 50% were on a mineralocorid receptor antagonist, and 12% were on a loop diuretic. Okay, so generally good medical therapy then too. All right. So if those were the patients that were enrolled then, Sam, what was the intervention that they did specifically? How did they do their deprescribing? The medications were withdrawn then in a stepwise fashion, starting with the loop diuretic, then the MRA, then ACE inhibitor or ARB, and then finally the beta blocker. And each was withdrawn over a period of about two weeks. Depending on how high of a dose they were on to begin with, they would either stop it altogether or they would dose reduce it. So the whole thing then took probably one to two months then to get them off of all their medications? Yeah, at maximum, depending on how many things they were on. Okay. And then once they had them um, off of their medications, what were they looking for? What was the primary outcome here? They defined their primary endpoint as relapse of dilated cardiomyopathy within six months. And they defined relapse by having a reduction in the LVEF by more than 10% and to less than 50%. Also, an increase in the LVDV, which is the left ventricular end diastolic volume, a twofold rise in BNP, and it had to be more than 400 or clinical evidence of heart failure. So essentially, they they were looking for, did you have imaging findings consistent with relapse of heart failure, or did you have biochemical or clinical? If you had any single one of those, you were counted as having a relapse. There were also quite a few secondary endpoints, including your standard major adverse cardiac events, mortality, and then also they had some quality of life measures and also did some cardiopulmonary exercise testing. Okay, so that all sounds very reasonable then. Why don't we get into the results of the paper then? What did they actually find once they withdrew those medications? So, like I said, a small sample size, but of the 51 participants with recovered dilated cardiomyopathy, 25 were randomized to treatment withdrawal and 26 were randomized to continue treatment. 
Although based on the single arm crossover design, all of those 26 who continued their treatment then went on to have their treatment withdrawn as well. So everyone got the same treatment withdrawal eventually. Okay, so we got we got we had an N of 51 essentially just in in two phases. Yeah, and then in the initial phase, 11 out of 25 participants who had their treatment withdrawn went on to relapse within 6 months. So 40% essentially. And then when the other group also, nine had relapse. So if you take it all together, 20 out of 50 participants or 40% had a relapse after their medication was withdrawn. And that was, you know, based on imaging or based on symptoms. And they do go on to explain that many of them, if not almost all of them, did have at least some sort of symptoms. So it wasn't just that it was imaging findings. That is really surprising to me that it could happen so quickly and in such a large proportion. I imagine that's what got this pilot study published in The Lancet. Yeah, I think so. And it's definitely not what they were expecting. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about that after. But in addition, they do mention that a further four participants who didn't meet the definition of relapse actually ended up restarting their medications because they couldn't control their hypertension or they had uncontrolled atrial fibrillation. So essentially only 50% of the participants made it through the six months without reinitiating their treatment. So 50% of these relatively young non-vascular patients did not tolerate that. that. That's really, really pretty compelling. I'll just also mention that there were no deaths and no unplanned hospital admissions for heart failure, and there were no MACE or major adverse cardiac events in either group. They also did a pre-specified exploratory analysis, and I found this quite interesting that they found that being prescribed more than two medications and being on an MRA was predictive of relapse, as well as having an increased pro-BNP. And I guess it's interesting, but also kind of intuitive. Like, that's what I might expect. If you're on more medications or you need more medications to control your heart failure to begin with, then you might be at higher risk of relapse. So this makes me wonder, Sam, you mentioned at the beginning that something around, I think you said 20% of these patients or so had an identifiable cause for their dilated cardiomyopathy. Were they able to look at that subgroup specifically and see whether perhaps that was responsible for, or whether those patients that had a defined etiology that was no longer present, how did they do? So the authors did look at that and try and see whether they could tease out a different etiology, whether that predicts higher incidence of relapse, but they weren't able to find that and they didn't find any difference. But they do mention in their limitations that due to such a small sample size, they're not really able to comment on that. Okay, so any other points that you wanted to raise or anything else that you found of interest in this trial? I mean, I really liked the crossover arm design. I think that was a great way to mitigate having such a small sample size. I did want to point out kind of what I alluded to before, that the authors mentioned this was conceived as a pilot study. They were kind of expecting that this would show that it was safe to withdraw medications, and then they would do a larger study to look at withdrawing medications in this group, but they actually found the opposite of that. So I find that quite interesting that it's not what they had expected and maybe not what any of us had expected. Um, They do mention that they ended up contacting the data safety monitor because the incidence of the primary endpoint was just so high. They felt overall it was ethical to continue because despite having relapsed, the patients then improved when they went back on their medication. So it wasn't really having an adverse effect that couldn't be rectified. Hmm, interesting. 
I just also like to mention, I really like that they included a quality of life measurement. We don't always see this in cardiology studies, but they did a Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire, which actually ended up looking at, and it shows all these things about are they able to manage their daily life without dyspnea and how they're able to sort of function in their day-to-day life. And so they also had worsening measures of quality of life with withdrawal of their medication. So that to me also is really important. And I liked seeing that. So they actually use some patient-centered outcomes too, which I agree. That was something we don't see all that often and it is sort of refreshing. So is there any other limitations or anything else you wanted to highlight here before we bring it home to the bottom line? Well, one point is just that the study follow-up period is only six months. And I think, like as we've mentioned, the number of people that had relapse, even within six months, is so high. You would wonder what's going to happen if the study was extended and how many more people would have had relapse. So I think that's a really interesting point to keep in mind, that we might even be underestimating the effect of this. Hmm. That is something uh, worth noting, I think. So give us your final take on this, Sam. What is the take-home message here? And will this change the way that you practice? So I think in terms of strengths, this was a pretty well-designed trial. And despite being small with only 51 participants, the fact that the results were similarly worrisome for relapse once medications are withdrawn in both the continued treatment arm and the sort of starting out in the withdrawal arm. I feel like this is good enough for me to recommend against discontinuation of treatment for anyone that I see who has recovery of their ejection fraction with medical therapy for a dilated cardiomyopathy. I think we're going to see more on this topic and there will be future research, particularly on which medications maybe could be tapered off and which are more important to stay on, particularly trying to look at what you were saying. Can we look at the subgroups depending on the etiology and maybe determine therapy that way or what needs to be continued? But I think this will change my management in that I would not recommend that anyone try withdrawing their therapies unless they have a really good reason. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I really like the point that the authors make and calling for more um, for more research into, like you said, more refined means of maybe selecting out patients who, who could taper off the medications. But as it stands, I can't say that I generally recommend anyone stop some medications currently, but now that's really going to be reinforced for me with this paper. And in, until I see something pretty compelling going the other way, I, I think I'll continue to do that. I agree. Okay, thanks so much for bringing that paper to the show, Sam. I really, really enjoyed that. Thanks, Paxton. I'm going to switch gears a little bit, but try to keep it all within the cardiology kind of realm today. I'm going to present a paper that came out in the New England Journal in November by Deepak Bat et al. entitled Cardiovascular Risk Reduction with Icosapent Ethyl for Hypertriglyceridemia, also known as the Reduce It trial. All right, Paxton. So what's the bottom line of this trial? So the bottom line from this trial that came out, as I mentioned, just in early November was that in a large randomized placebo-controlled trial of patients with elevated triglycerides, despite being on adequate statin therapy, the use of icosapent ethyl improved a composite outcome of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, coronary revascularization, and unstable angina, with a number needed to treat of just 21 over about five years. And so what made you choose this trial? And maybe you wouldn't mind telling us what exactly is icosapent ethyl? Ah, good question. 
So icosapent ethyl is a omega-3 fatty acid. It's a highly purified form of omega-3 fatty acid. Specifically, it is composed of high levels of what's called EPA instead of DHA, which is the other common form of omega-3 fatty acid. And the reason I selected this trial is that supplements come up all the time in office visits. Patients talk about them all the time. And in, in fact, we know that over half of the US population takes some kind of supplement. Patients often ask around fish oil, and particularly as it applies to cardiovascular health. And really, I don't always know what to tell them because we've kind of gone back and forth over this over the years. So in the 90s, we began seeing this observational data suggesting that people who eat lots of fish, there was an association with protection from cardiovascular disease, which led to a ton of studies on omega-3 fatty acids and whether or not they actually reduced cardiovascular health. Those studies early on seemed to suggest that maybe there was some protection, but as they became larger and kind of better conducted, it really sort of kind of watered down most of the results. And all of the recent meta-analyses don't seem to suggest a whole lot, such that the American Heart Association's recommendation is now very soft. And it leaves us all a little confused, and it says you can consider these in people for secondary prevention. So last week on the show, we heard about a trial called the VITAL trial, which was presented by Dr. Kate Schultz. And that trial showed no benefit from omega-3 fatty acid supplementation. At the same time that that trial came out, however, we also saw this reduced trial come out, which is looking at a less healthy population than the one we heard last week, mostly focused on secondary prevention. Great. It's the old pendulum swinging both ways with supplements. So we can see where we're at now. So let's get into this trial. What was the design of the study and where did it take place? So this study was a large trial. It was not as large as the vital trial from last week, but it was an international randomized placebo-controlled multi-central trial that took place at 473 different sites across 11 different countries, although the group that was um, in charge of orchestrating the whole thing was based out of Boston. All right, large study. And who were the patients in the study? So as I mentioned, the patients in this study were a bit different from VITAL. VITAL was focused more on primary prevention. And the patients in this trial were adults over 45 years old with established cardiovascular disease. That's to say they either had no multivessel CAD, a previous MI or stroke, a previous NSTEMI, previous revascularization, etc., or they would also include adults that were greater than 50 years old with diabetes and at least one other cardiac risk factor. They specifically capped the amount of primary prevention patients that they could have in the trial at 30% because it was really focused on sort of a higher risk population. All right. So Paxton, how does the hypertriglyceridemia play into all this? A good question. So we know that omega-3 fatty acids can reduce triglycerides, and that's been shown in the past. Um, but whether that is actually significant in any way, we don't really know. So in this trial, they took those higher-risk patients and they assessed their triglyceride levels. And if their triglycerides were greater than 150 milligrams per deciliter, or in the language that I speak, that's a lower limit of 1.69 millimoles per liter, they were considered to have hypertriglyceridemia and were eligible for this trial. I will note that partway through the trial, they did increase that lower limit up to 200 milligrams per deciliter in order to make sure they're really capturing a hypertriglyceridemia patient. So that's just a little asterisk to the trial. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting protocol amendment that wasn't really explained. But I mean, if anything, it's going to capture more severe disease. 
You're right. They didn't really explain it all that much. And, and I, I gather they probably may be seeing more patients than expected kind of at that lower limit. They wanted to make sure they really capture this hypertriglyceridemia patient pool. The last thing that I'll point out about the patients that are enrolled is they were all on a stable dose of statin for at least four weeks. And that is important because a lot of the previous literature we have in this area was in a pre, pre-statin era. Yeah, and they were very well controlled on their statin, kind of at the targets we would want to see. So, and then is there anything more you want to say about the exclusion criteria? Yeah, their exclusion criteria included people who are generally just just very sick. So anyone with severe heart failure, severe liver disease, out of control diabetes with an A1C over 10%, planned upcoming PCI or surgery, those they were all excluded. Anyone with a history of a shellfish or fish allergy was also excluded. And anyone who was on other triglyceride-lowering supplements such as niacin or fish oils were excluded, along with anyone who was on a PCSK9 inhibitor. All right. All of that seems to make sense. So what was the intervention in this study? So I will mention at this point that this was a pharma-sponsored trial. So the intervention for this study was randomizing these patients to either receiving two grams of icosapent-ethyl, which is the trade name is Vascepa, um, which is, again, as I mentioned, a high EPA-containing omega-3 fatty acid. So either two grams a day BID of icosapent-ethyl or twice a day mineral oil placebos to simulate the taste and texture of the oil. The groups were stratified by primary versus secondary prevention. And as I mentioned, those who were enrolled for primary prevention were capped at 30%. They were also stratified by geographic region and by whether or not they were taking ezetimibe. So Paxton, what were the primary outcomes? So the primary outcome here, as I mentioned in the intro, was one of these composite outcomes that we're seeing more and more often. So the primary outcome was a composite outcome of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, coronary revascularization, or unstable angina. So I'll mention that they did define a particular key secondary outcome, and that was another composite outcome of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke. And then beyond that, they laid out numerous secondary outcomes, which were all pre-specified and set to be analyzed in a hierarchical model. So a stepwise approach to looking at one secondary outcome after the next. And then these approaches typically, when they reach a point where one of their secondary outcomes is not statistically significant, that is the end of their hierarchy and they don't go down their secondary outcome tree any further than that. Hmm, interesting. And so what's, what did we find in this study? So if we dive into the results, as I mentioned, this was a fairly large trial. They screened almost 20,000 patients and just over 8,000 of them met the criteria for enrollment. The mean follow-up for the patients in this event-driven trial was just under five years and about 90% of each arm completed the study. That's, I mean, that's pretty good. That's a nice long follow-up period and also like low dropout rates. Yeah, I think, I think 90% of 8,000 people for five years is pretty respectable effort. So the patients that they enrolled on average were 64 years old. They were 70% male, 90% Caucasian. Their median BMI was just over 30. And just over 50% of them had pre-existing diagnosis of diabetes at the time of enrollment. So I will note again, also an important thing, uh, the patients that were enrolled, 90% of them were on a moderate to high intensity statin. So on good statin therapy, their median LDL at the time of enrollment was 75 five milligrams per deciliter, or in my, in yours language, that would be 1.9 millimoles per liter. So well-controlled LDL. 
Yeah, I and as it would kind of have to be to do a trial like this for it to be meaningful to me. I'd want to know that they're well controlled in every other way. Yeah, these guys are tired. And their mean triglycerides were 216, or again, translating the units, that's 2.44 millimoles per liter. So high, nothing, nothing extreme, but certainly uh, above kind of our normal range. Yeah, so you told us about what their kind of endpoints were. What did they see in terms of triglyceride lowering? So getting the results in. So they divided the results into biochemical results and clinical results. So from a biochemical perspective, they saw a decrease in trigs by uh, about 18% at one year in the treatment group compared to an actual increase of 2% in the control group. So the supplement did what was expected in terms of actually providing lower triglyceride levels. Okay, and probably to me, the more important results would be the clinical endpoints. Yeah, I agree. So from a clinical perspective, looking at their primary endpoint, this is quite interesting. The primary endpoint occurred in 17% of the treatment group at five years and 22% in the placebo group. So that's an absolute risk reduction of nearly 5% or a number needed to treat here of 21 That is really, really dramatic, I think, for patients who are already on good statin levels. And we'll talk about this a little bit more. In terms of the secondary endpoints, so that the secondary composite endpoint of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke, so again, pretty big events, the absolute risk reduction there was 3.6% for a number needed to treat after five years of 28. So also pretty good results. Now, what I'd like to point out with this trial that I really liked, I, I got to say, I appreciated kind of the statistical approach that these guys took and the way they showed their data. When you look in the tables that they provided, as well as in the supplemental materials, first off, they break down each of the components of the primary outcome. And every single one of those individually shows a statistical difference favoring the treatment group. In addition, they looked at that primary outcome across a variety of pre-specified subgroups, and it showed fairly consistent effect in any subgroup that they looked at. And that includes a subgroup where their baseline triglycerides were over 200 or less than 200. So irrespective of their starting triglycerides, they seem to get the same level of benefit from this intervention. Yes, it's all very interesting. And I'm glad that they also that they did that breaking up the pre-specified uh, sort of composite endpoint, because you'd want to know which of those things are, are going to be reduced. And it seems like all of them. Yeah, so often we see those composite outcomes being driven by one thing in particular. And here, I think they did a really good job of showing a consistent effect across outcomes and across treatment groups, which lends a lot of weight to me to the results. It makes me believe this more. Yeah. And then I'm curious to hear your thoughts because the authors bring up the adverse events, including the atrial fibrillation and the bleeding. I wanted to hear how you put that all together. Yeah, so exactly that. They did note that there was higher levels of atrial fibrillation in the treatment group uh, compared to the control group by about 1.5%. There was also higher levels of peripheral edema in the the treatment group compared to the control group by about 1.5%. In terms of bleeding, it's a little muddier, but it looked like there was a trend towards significance in bleeding in the treatment group compared to the control group, but not in severe bleeding, and that was sort of marginally significant. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to figure out why this medication might cause that. Maybe more bleeding because more atrial fibrillation and more people getting anticoagulated. Who knows? 
Yeah. I think what that highlights to me is the fact that we really don't know what is driving this effect here. Because as I mentioned, it doesn't seem to be related to starting triglyceride levels or final triglyceride levels. So there's a lot of speculation here as to whether this is uh, related to an anti-inflammatory effect of the uh, omega-3 fatty acids or questions about exactly what physiologically might be driving this. But I think the key here to me is one, this is a well-conducted trial. Two, these results are in contrast to a number other of triglyceride-lowering trials using things such as niacin or phenofibrates or other omega-3 fatty acids. But there is an argument to be made here that because they've selected such a high dose of fatty acid and because it's such a high level of EPA in this fatty acid in particular, that there is some consistency in the literature with this formulation specifically in terms of its cardiovascular benefit. And they talk about one particular trial in Japan that showed a benefit of purified EPA, which was an uncontrolled trial, and it was a trial that was criticized for low doses of statins. But really, when you start to look at these high-dose EPA supplements, there might be something here. So, Paxton, what do you take away from this trial? So just to reiterate, this is a really large multicenter randomized placebo-controlled trial of patients with cardiovascular risk factors or established cardiovascular disease and elevated triglycerides. They show here that the use of icosapent ethyl, which is an omega-3 fatty acid, reduced a composite outcome of major vascular events with a number needed to treat of just 21 over 4.9 years. To put that in context, we look at other big trials recently, such as the Fourier trial with PCSK9 inhibitors. That was an absolute risk reduction of 1.5%. The IMPROVE-IT trial, which we now use to justify putting all our patients on azetamide, that was an absolute risk reduction of 2%. So a very, very dramatic lowering, I think, in, in patients who are already on pretty good treatment. So do you think this is going to change your management? Should this be available at some point? So I don't know if the picture is really any clearer to me because of the contrasting trials that we're seeing. Such you know, this, this is in direct contrast with the VITAL trial, which was published at the exact same time. But certainly it's kind of piqued my interest, and I look forward to more information here, not only because it may guide my pharmacologic management of these patients, but also it may inform my dietary recommendations that I make with these patients. In the meantime, I'm going to continue to focus on exercise and lifestyle because those are areas where you can't go wrong. But I really do look forward to more results in this area. And there's a quite a large trial called the Statin Residual Risk Reduction with Epinova in high cardiovascular risk patients with hypertriglyceridemia, uh, which is expected to come out in late 2019 or early 2020, which uh, hopefully will shed some more light on this. All right. Looking forward to that. Well, thanks, Paxton. Excellent. Okay. Well, so that's that. So with that, it brings us to uh, my favorite part of the show, and I'm sure one that's, that's fast becoming your favorite part as well, and that's the Good Stuff segment. So Sam, tell us what you're reading about. Okay, so this is actually an old article from CMAJ in 2002 by Kenneth Fledgel. Sorry if I pronounced that name wrong, but I found it trending on Twitter a few months ago, and then I recently read it. So it's an account of a Harvard medical student named Alfred S. Reinhardt, who in the 1930s had rheumatic heart disease, and then he journals like incredible detail about developing subacute bacterial endocarditis. And that actually ended up killing him at the age of 24. So I'll just read you one passage that I loved from reading this, and I would highly recommend anyone read it. He says, no sooner had I removed 
the left arm of my coat, then there was on the ventral aspect of my left wrist a sight which I will never forget until I die. There greeted my eyes about 15 or 20 bright red, slightly raised hemorrhagic spots about one millimeter in diameter, which stood defiant as if they were challenging the very gods of Olympus. I took one glance at the pretty little collection of spots and turned to my sister-in-law, who was standing nearby, and calmly said, I shall be dead within six months. Like, do you have chills or what from this? So he goes on and then he discusses his strep viridans positive blood cultures and his development of splenic infarcts until he could no longer, unfortunately, document this detail because he got hemiplegia from septic cerebral emboli. But it's just a really fascinating read from a medicine historical perspective. And also, you know, unfortunately, we see quite a lot of endocarditis. So I just really liked reading about this. And Alfred Reinhardt will live on. That is a pretty macabre diary, but quite a fascinating perspective. Yeah. So Paxton, what do you have for us in, the, in your good stuff segment? So I'm going to go with something a little bit lighter than that. I find the idea of sort of social and architectural changes to help guide human behavior to be a really interesting one. And I don't mean that in the sense of things like sugar taxes or those sort of punitive, pretty crude tools, but sort of more, um, more refined tools of helping to guide human behavior towards making the healthier choice. So I was reading a website today which was talking about a research article that actually just came out in PLOS Medicine, talking about the effect of just removing suites from next to the cash registers at a bunch of UK supermarkets. So just trying to see whether they could minimize that impulse buy, minimize that when you grab a chocolate bar kind of on your way through. They actually found that just with that small change of not putting them into the cash register, they saw almost 20% less sugar, like chocolate, sugar confections, chips, those kind of things. And 80% less purchases were bought and eaten on the way out of the store. So was just a kind of a small twist in terms of just the location of these kind of things. Actually, pretty major potential health benefits there. Yeah, that is, I mean, you're going to have to get the government involved in that because they, I can imagine the stores are not going to be keen on reducing their sales, but it's that's very interesting. No, it's kind of like reverse marketing, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, Sam, well, really appreciated having you on the show again today. Uh, really enjoyed the articles that, that you brought forward and thanks so much. I hope we see you again. Yeah, thanks a lot. Goodbye, everyone. Take care. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor Emilio Garcia Flores, communications director Grace Zhao, segment director Shaliza Halani, host director Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the rounds table Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in. <laughs>